You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome back to Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr here with Jack Bevere today. This is episode 15, and we've got a lot to go through uh, based on episode 14, Jack. So I'm really looking forward to jumping into the conversation. Yep, absolutely. We had a uh, fantastic interview with Logan Motoshami from HousingWire. He's a uh, super dialed in economist on everything housing. He's definitely uh, weekly required re reading for, for both of us um, because his, his insights and what he's paying attention to is, is very much on point. Um, what's the, uh, you know, the, the housing wire and Altos research go together and Altos has some really exceptional data, real time uh, MLS data, which gives this kind of additional level of insights. That's like in real time. So you're not waiting for like last month's report or last quarter's report. Like they're looking at changes to listings, um, solds under contracts on a literally weekly basis by, by sub market and then aggregated across the country. And, um, so I find them to be like a super high quality data source. And then uh, Logan's paying attention to really everything kind of macro on top of that to try to give the, uh, to, to, you know, with, with the, with the getting fed the data on what's going on in the local markets, he adds on top the um, kind of the macro aspect of things. And so we had a super good conversation with him for about almost an hour uh, just now and uh, learned a ton and I'm um, excited to hopefully have him on in the future as well. Yeah. If you haven't had a chance to check out uh, episode 14 yet with Logan, I would highly encourage everybody to go ahead and listen to that and then maybe catch up with us. What we found was, you know, brilliant guy. He's been doing it for a long time. And so he speaks uh, quickly and at a very high level. We thought it would be an interesting thing to maybe break down uh, that episode. And some of the things that we heard, um, during that episode and, um, you know, uh, Jack, uh, I thought it was a great conversation, uh, with regards to Altos and housing wire, you're absolutely correct. It is required reading. I just, there's just such a wealth of knowledge, not only from, um, you know, it's funny, uh, if you go to housing wire, that is a paid subscription service. However, they put out amazing content via podcasts uh, multiple times a week on YouTube and um, I guess on all the services that uh, that host podcasts and Altos. Uh, I, I did, didn't realize they they actually analyze every single transaction, every single real estate residential real estate transaction in the country, almost in real time. So uh, they also have a very very robust YouTube channel that I think people uh, any investor should be checking out. So. That's great, great resources for you guys if you haven't if you haven't checked that out. Um, Jack, uh, you know, over the past uh, several months, I've been talking more and more to Main Street investors around the country. And, you know, when I say Main Street investors, Jack, I don't mean the guys that we generally have here on the podcast. Like last week, we spoke to um, Dennis Esterna. You know, there's a guy who's obviously riding at a very high level with his business. And most of the people in, in the Real Investors Roundtable uh, mastermind that you and Fred have are sort of in that genre, wouldn't you agree? Mm -hmm. Sort of that top 1% of, of investors in the country. I find that I'm talking to the guys that are sort of the next tier down quite a bit. 
And what I see is a lot of emotion. I see uh, frustration. I see guys that are hopeful that um, you know the market will present opportunities. But I, but I think I see guys that are really dealing with a lot of headwinds right now. And the conversation that I got from Logan was, yeah, the guy feels pretty, he still feels pretty, you know, one, I think we both, you and I both agree, Jack, and we've always maintained that we're bullish long-term on American real estate. Um, and, but I think that Logan, I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth, but I, I felt a very sort of rosy outlook for sort of where we are. Would you, would you put it that way? Not rosy, but he's not bearish. Yeah, I think that he's, I think, you know, from, from a macro perspective, which is the one that he's taking, uh, you know, he doesn't think that there's going to be a housing crash from a pricing point of view. Um, and I think that the, the main driver behind that idea is that he, uh, he thinks that there's going to be a, a relative, there's very conceivably a, a relatively soft landing from the Fed's point of view that we've got, we're in a, an environment where rates are going to stay higher, but may come down a little bit um, because what the Fed has, is doing to tweak the economy is working. And, um, and, and, you know, depending on how unemployment figures, the job market goes over the next, you know, three to six months, that'll be largely determining what the Fed does. But at this point, I got the sense that he thinks that the Fed's in tweaking mode. And, that the because the job market has been so strong, the American consumer has been so strong, that you know things are going to be <clears throat> that that the that the system as a whole is in a safe place. Now, in the same breath, he's talking about how you know we're in probably a perpetually uh, or a long-term lower transaction volume environment, and I feel like that detail is like the one that most negatively affects frankly um our our, what we our do. yeah what we do yeah um and uh so you know I, I would say it's like you know he's bullish in the point of view that he doesn't think that housing prices are going to decrease significantly going to decrease mm -hmm. at all and and certainly not significantly but yeah transaction volumes are going to stay low so like uh all right you know that's that from from a bit planning your business point of view though that's actually not great news um no but it's, you know, I, I, and, and I think it makes sense. Like, I, I, th I think that that perspective makes sense. Um, you know, it, it, honestly, Jack, he kept saying uh, that um, it all really comes down with him to jobless claims and yield curve, mm -hmm. jobless claims and yield curve. And so what are we seeing right now on jobless claims? Well, we're seeing 3.8% uh, unemployment. But, but the thing that I think that most people don't talk about is the increasing labor force participation uh, percentage. And that is actually increasing. It's about 63% right now. Um, and so uh, the, at its highest in 2000, it was at about 68. Mm -hmm. It sort of came down since then, but is still rocking up, uh, you know, in, a, in an upward trajectory right now, labor force participation is really at, 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 at some of the highest it's been in, in, in quite some time. And I don't, and so what do we know about labor labor uh, statistics? They're generally lagging indicators um, for where the economy is going. Correct. Mm -hmm. It's 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 something that so so when he talks about jobless claims, you know how soon how how bad does it have to get? Where does it go? Um, you know, 
what are you feeling there in terms of his his um, his model of of residential uh, real estate in that it's, it really hinges so much on jobless claims and yield curve? Yeah, I think that the uh, from the jobless claims point of view, the, you know, he points out that the the, the jobless claim it's ticking up. Um, like the Fed's the Fed's um, efforts are working right, and and so the uh, jobless claims have ex, um, rather the labor market is softer. We'll put it that way. So the labor market is softer, and ultimately that suggests that what the Fed's doing is working, that the Fed agrees that what they're doing is working. And they and that but it, but with an understanding that the Fed has an understanding that they're in restrictive territory right now at these levels. Um, so like, I think that, you know, he'd probably flip a coin on whether what's going to happen at the next Fed meeting. And he would probably say that. And that's a good thing, because let's just wait for the data, see what jobless claims do. Um, but if we continue to have softening in the labor market, that um, a modest decrease in the Fed rate is probably appropriate. I don't think that yeah. anything that he's saying of what he thinks is going to happen is going to change the status quo for real estate investors, though, like their day to day very much. Right. Like this is kind of this is a new normal. Get used to it. There isn't going to be like a, a hundred basis point drop in in mortgage rates um, unless we have an, a recession, which leads to its own set of issues. Um, mm -hmm. And the, and and frankly, that's probably not going to happen because the Fed's going to you know is watching that super closely and and has tools in the bag right now to affect the economy because interest rates are so high. Um, so I mean, I I, th I think that from a but from a real estate investor from a you know supply of inventory point of view. Um, that this may be, you know, the new normal that we need to get used to. And yeah, I, th I agree with the pain, you know, commentary that this, that, that that's a, um, that that's not, that's not great news, right. From, uh, from, from our perspective. Let's pivot real quick. I was reading a story earlier this morning. Um, so Powell, uh, Fed Chairman Powell spoke twice. Uh, once in August, and then right after that again in September, it was August at Jackson Hole, where I I had read that he basically ripped up his longer speech and then just had like a little five uh, five pager, and he mentioned you know when you listen to the Fed, they're not a, they're not doom and gloom guys they like they generally the doom and gloom comes generally too late they're generally they they talk a much more rosy game because that's uh, that's their job which is to keep everybody, um, you know, they, they're, they're not going to come out and talk about doom and gloom. But what he did say three times during that short speech was the word pain, pain, and pain. And so uh, he said that, uh, let's see here. So uh, while higher interest rates, slower growth, and a softer labor market will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses, he said in his prepared remarks there. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. And so um, I, I don't know, Jack, I, I just don't feel like that we're sort of that we're out of the woods. And, and I think what, uh, you know, what I was hearing from Logan was um, 
that we may see a a very slight change in rates, but it's not just as you just said. It's not going to be significant. It's not going to be hey, rates are going to fall back down to in the fives or in the fours anytime soon. We're living in a in a sort of a different environment right now that appears to be a sticky one that could be with us for a while unless we see some sort of greater recession or or, or financial crisis. Yeah, I feel like it, for me, it feels for, for, you know, for our business, it feels like a slow strangle, frankly, that like, you know, it, it took a long time. Talk about it. Yeah, like, so like, you know, a year ago when rates started to increase, it was fear, right? But I wasn't actually feeling a whole lot of pain on a day-to-day -day basis. It was just fear of pain. And some people reacted to that fear of pain by downsizing uh, immediately. Uh, there was some transaction volume. There was a significant transaction volume decrease um, as a result of that fear, and that you know that led to just the, the immediate shedding of of what it, of of excess um, you know capacity in a lot of small businesses. You just took on less mm -hmm. projects. We're pickier about you know we're pickier about projects, um, but it didn't really hit our wallets. I would say from like the cost, the increased cost of capital, you know, from how much we were paying and borrowing on the short term side, it took a while, you know, six, eight months for that to price into where we are today, which is probably three or 400 basis points higher of a cost of capital on short term borrowings today mm -hmm. than where we were a year ago. And then on the long term mm -hmm. side, um, you know, rates have gone up a couple hundred basis points, um, but you had the banks until 90 days ago, I would say it's gotten much more restrictive from the banking side. And that seems to be a very concerning, you know, what could be a, a new normal. And I think Logan would agree with that, 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 you know, he doesn't, you know, when he talks about the Fed decreasing rates, he's talking, he said it, he's talking about 50, 75 basis points. And at max. Yeah, at max. And that, and that just doesn't make great deals, right? 50, 75 basis points are not the problem right now, right? We, we're talking about, we're buying houses at a seven and a, we're talking about buying houses at a seven cap and borrowing money at seven and a half right now. If that comes down to six, seven, five, that's like barely a creative financing. It's not like, that's not good stuff, you know? Um, yeah. For, for, for growing a rental portfolio, for growing a real estate investing business. Um, and so I think that that, but, but that's where we are. And as a result, there's less free cash flow for all, from all of these act activities. And yet, you know, stuff costs what, you know, pay, payroll it is what it is and the truck payment is what it is. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that we, I don't think that he would say, and I believe this as well, that, that there is, Hey, just the, the just around the corner, things are going to get rosy again. Um, so, you know, for me, that feels, it feels like a slow strangle where I'm like, just, you know, wait, you know, hoping that things are going to get better. But at this point, I'm like, we're, I'm really running out of like, running out of ideas in, in terms of like, hey, you know, what's the thing that's going to make this better 90 days from now? Why should I continue to hang on um, if the business isn't making the money that it used to or isn't making the money, you know, for it to be sustainable? Um, so, so anyway, that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah no, man, I, I, I totally get it. Um, I, I was looking at some of the cash positions of, you know, the, the, the bigger banks um, and uh, like Warren Buffett just uh, reported yesterday that the Berkshire Hathaway has a cash position right now of a trillion dollars. Jamie Dimon has a trillion dollars of cash sitting around. And so, you know, why? 
why why do they have a trillion dollars of cash sitting around jack uh, at, let me let me let me juice the question a little bit further let me let me let me throw it over the throw it over the plate just perfectly for you now so um <laughs> Uh, also read that uh, for, uh, this year there's been over 400 corporate uh, bankruptcies, um, and uh, I heard. Uh, so Jamie Dimon was saying that uh, you know why do we have a trillion dollars? Because we think things are going to be on sale. Yeah. And so if you're a guy who you're 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 at the main street level and you're waiting for all of this inventory to break. Because that's really what we're talking about, Jack. Yeah, is the the massive headwinds defining the needle in the haystack. Um, you know, it's hard. It feels like it's harder than ever to find the needle in the haystack. And what I when I see companies uh, putting a trillion dollars of cat uh, into cash, I feel like they feel the deals are coming. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the case. There's lots of very smart people uh, who are like set up, you know, who have set up these opportunistic funds, right, looking for these situations that are going to happen. Um, and I don't think, but I don't think a whole lot of that money has been deployed. I don't think very much of that money no. at all has been deployed yet. It's all like still get ready money. And you know, they're waiting, what they're waiting for is the pain, right. To start affecting decisions for, you know, and that's what has to happen, right? Like that's the, the Fed pal has been talking, using, talking about pain for a year, but I don't think it really started to get felt on the main street level, uh, and until the past quarter. And I do, how do you think they're feeling it? Uh, that, that, uh, fewer transaction volumes with the same overhead, trying to amortize overhead over a lower transaction volume, um, that deals are singles. It's so, it's so hard to find a double or a triple right now. Um, very mm-hmm. few and far between and that the competition is, and as a, and that's because the competition is also still there. So, yeah, you, um, you would think in this environment, Jack, that we would at least see uh, people dropping out in, in terms of competition. And I think I it's about to start. Yeah, and I think, but that's the thing yeah. is I think it's about to start, right? Like that's the people, people have to get really, you know, they have to feel a lot of pain before they change their behavior. And I feel like the pain is just really kind of like, you know, is, is really starting to build momentum and that will start to lead folks to, to change their behavior. Now, those who have built their businesses and or their balance sheets with a staying power to make it through, you know, seven innings of pain will there will, will then be the ones who are there to, to take advantage of the opportunities, but the opportunities don't come until people start, you know, just tapping out. And yes, I feel like, you know, uh, that that's just starting to even enter people's minds as to like, Hey, maybe I should actually do something different here because I just don't see this getting better anytime soon or, you know, in, in, in the, in the medium term, I'm going to run out of cash before the opportunities really come. Or by the time the opportunities come, I'm going to have spent my cash and not be able to take advantage of them, which I think is something that's a lot, a lot of folks uh, is the more of the reality is that, you know, the, the, the trillion dollars that's coming in from insurance companies and pension funds and, and private equity firms who are, you know, trying to be opportunistic, that's coming from some other place and looking for the, waiting for this opportunistic environment. But the folks who are the players on, in the, you know, on the field right now, 
it's hard for them to both stay on the field and stack cash to take advantage of the opportunities as, as they start to present themselves. And I feel like that's the yes. people miscalculate that reality that, 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 you know, when, by the time it gets that painful, that there's actually opportunities. Oh, you're immune from the pain. How, how did you pull that off? Because, you know, if you're, if you're active on the field right now, you're not immune for the pain. You're, you're, you do have higher costs of capital. You do have overhead that is not being offset as much as it used to be by, by deals. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think Are that's more see- the reality. So where where might we be seeing uh, our competition tapping out in the country, um, you know, in, in markets around the country, Jack? Where where might we see that first around the country? Is it places like Austin, you know, San Francisco, Nashville, uh, Charlotte? You know, where where might we be seeing that already in the market? I think that the, the, the higher end of the market where you've seen uh, bigger price decreases and where there's still not full stability in, in terms of housing prices, like, you know, you're not, you don't feel super confident where the market's going to be six months from now, nine months from now, when that property actually hits the market. That's the place where I think that folks are, there's a, there's a thinner bid for the as is property right now. Um, I'll just you know use use one example like Washington D.C. has experienced probably 10, 15 price decreases in the higher per square foot areas of Washington D.C. as much as twenty, and so everybody and it's also a difficult environment to operate in, right? Like lots of permit issues, lots of uh, local operational you know uh, nuances that are hard for folks to just jump into. Well, anybody who- that's uh, I, I call that uh, having too many people that want to dip their <laughs> dip their beak into your business. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah for sure. So like, in a, in a market like that, the players who know how to operate, I mean, they have deals that they are trying to get off their balance sheet, trying to recycle the capital that they're that they are taking hits on, right, that they are, you know, they, they didn't make any money on that deal, they lost money on that deal. And so signing up for the next one is not as appealing. So like, the usual cast of characters that were bidding up as is prices are just dealing with their own shit, frankly, and they're not going to be there. And so as a result, you're going to see margins increase in those markets first, I think. Now, if you're, you know, there's like a, hey, you know, there's a timing issue there, right? Like you don't want to be the guy who's coming in too early to pick up the scraps because then you're actually just not getting paid appropriately for the risk. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, at some point the market hits a clearing price and, and people start coming back in. I think that's the first place that you're going to find opportunities. I think that one of the last places to find opportunities are in the are in the affordable kind of middle of the road, you know, two hundred and fifty to six hundred thousand dollar price point areas because because those houses do still sell, and we haven't seen as much pain experienced by real estate investors. That's more of an issue of do I am I getting enough deals to de- to, to to pay for my overhead, and so that sure. markets like that are like it's it's very advantageous. It's frankly advantageous to be smaller. Um, because you don't have that, um, you don't have that weight of, of payroll to to keep up. Um, I think that a bright spot, by the way, um, you know, given that the the one of the, the fundamental core issues here is a, a low supply of inventory, um, you know, low transaction volumes, low, low because of low inventory, um, is in the new construction side because you're creating new supply. That's the only place that you can truly create new supply is by taking farmland and, and turning it into to a residential subdivision. 
um, or doing mm-hmm. infill lots, right? Uh, infill lot new construction. And we're seeing that work very well right now uh, because it's yes. creation of new supply. Uh, and so um, I think that builders are in the catbird seat right now, frankly. Um, yeah. The, oh, oh, just as a yeah. as a side note, Jack, um, we're going to be having uh, Franklin Cruz on our next episode. Franklin's uh, building smaller houses, was do, initially doing build for rent, but he's building smaller houses in Lakeland, Florida right now uh, and ch- is just killing it. So it's going to be a great conversation for folks to tune in on on our next episode. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, Lakeland's a super interesting market. That was like the that, that was the like you know, one of the ground zeros for the the great recession because of how many, how much land was there and how many lots got developed, but then never built. So you just had just yeah. miles and miles and miles of, of pipe farms. Um, and it's, yep. and it's been, it's been 15 years and there's still a lot of, of, un, of developed, but not built lots there. And now that dynamic has totally shifted, right? Like we went from in 2008, we'd massively overbuilt for the market and we had, and now 15 years later, we're massively underbuilt for the market. And so a place like Lakeland with a lot of inventory in the ground, you know, a lot, a lot inventory developed lot inventory in the ground is, um, a super interesting place to, uh, to, to, to play. Um, and in a state that's had the, you know, that's, that's benefited from tremendous in-migration and an economy that's now like embraced remote work. So like before the, the, the hawk against Lakeland was that, yeah, there's no jobs out there, but now if your mm-hmm. job is your internet connection, that's just affordable inventory in Florida. Like that's just, hey, well, that's a $250,000 house in Florida. Like that's sexy. Well, that's, that is the part that I think most excites me because I feel like there's a lot of pipe farms around the country right now. Um, and that's the, we talked about Melody Wright a little bit earlier, somebody who I think we might want to have on the show. She's an analyst in the market that is very, very doom and gloom. In fact, she just put a report out that said the cat five storm of real estate is coming. So anxious to have her on the show. But, um, but, but the supposition there is that builders are sitting on a lot of lot inventory. And even though you and I feel like builders are very much in the cat seat right now, the question is how much of that inventory is actually affordable. And I think her uh, supposition from riding around the country and looking at these massive, uh, you know, Jack, my wife and I, we, we, when we were thinking about moving to Florida, it was, it was commonplace to ride into a development uh, in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, or anywhere around there where it was like, hey, this is going to be a 15,000 house development. This is going to be a 10,000 house development. This is going to be a 20,000 house development where you have multiple builders all inside the fence. And I think what what we saw back in 2008 was the pipe farms, as you said, the, the, the economy sort of went south. We've got Maine sticking out of the ground as far as the eyes can see. And then it just became uh, the deal of what, how many, how many pennies on the dollar are we going to sell these lots for when, when to the next builder? And so, uh, to your point with regards to affordable in Lakeland, I think it's it's it is the business model of business models right now to bring on inventory, get your get your land, get your lot pricing right, but then put out houses that are affordable, and it they appear to be selling like hotcakes. So looking forward to speaking with Franklin. Yeah, yeah. I think an offset for like the, for what's helpful or 
the, the offset to that is that financing those projects has become substantially more expensive and requires substanti substantially more equity, uh, namely because of the banks having pulled back. So, right, like, which is, of course, of course, that's what happens, right? Like, as soon as there's an opportunity and as soon as the builder can say, like, hey, mm -hmm. I'm building new, you know, I'm building affordable new construction inventory and this stuff, um, you know, in a good market where there is absorption, the bank says, hey, yeah, and uh, well, yeah, by the way, I've got my own shit and I'm decreasing your advance rate by 15% and increasing your cost of capital by 300 basis points. So you're going to have to go raise a whole bunch of equity in, environment, in an environment where equity is, you know, trying to be very opportunistic. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of guys sitting on the sideline waiting because they think there's more pain to come. So trying to raise equity right now is challenging because there's a lot of equity that's like, I don't think we're there yet. You know, like, I don't think we're peak pain yet. And, um, and they're, yeah, they're like probably the, knife, right. the knife is still falling. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, the, the cool part of the, the discussion that we had with, uh, I don't know who that is, me or you, apologize. Um, the cool part of the discussion that we had with uh, Logan was really centered around, um, you know, as you said, the macros. Um, the conversation that we're having now is obviously about credit. Um, so break that down, Jack. Like if, I, if I'm a guy and I've got a small development that I'm doing and it's, I don't know, what's a, what's a good number? $20 million, you know, project. You walk into your bank and they're like, these were the terms six months ago. We're, we're forcing you now to have this much more equity in a project. What, can you put that in concrete terms for us? Like what, what is a guy looking at? Yeah. So before it was 75 to 80% loan to cost, um, on, on that project, um, or you'd have, uh, so you're getting like, you're getting up to like 16 million of a bank of, of debt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it would cost, you know, and that money costs 6%. And now that is, you know, they'll give you fit, you know, 60% loan to cost. Um, so, you know, down 15, 20 points, um, in terms of advance rate and that money is going to cost you eight and a half percent right now from a bank. Um, mm -hmm. and so you, you're going to have to go find that equity. And there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of local and regional builders right now that are experiencing exactly that, that they feel that they're in the catbird speed seat, that they've got opportunities. Um, but the, but their cost of capital has gone up significantly and that's not even the killer, right? Because they're building new inventory, you know, their margins are, you know, are 30%. 20, you know, 20, 30% on that stuff. So they can, they can absorb the mm -hmm. 400 basis points across the capital. The issue is equity. The issue is, you know, I, I need, you know, I need $5 million for this project and $3 million for this project and $6 million for that project. And I don't know that many like rich guys and the institutional yeah, capital. Friend, friends, my friend's family and fool's uh, money has kind of run out, right? Yeah. And, and there's a, and there's frankly, there's also like a gap in that equity market where if, if you're, if you're the institutional equity wants to write checks at minimum 5 million bucks at a time. And really they'd prefer to be writing checks 10 million bucks at a time, which means they're looking at the, they're looking at the $30 million plus projects, but for anything from like a million to 30 million, it's this no man's land, right? Like kind of the same, mm -hmm. so the same dynamic exists in commercial real estate where it's not big enough to really attract institutional capital but it's kind of all right. the same work, right? Like whether you're underwriting a hundred lots or, you're, or, you know, whether you're underwriting a hundred lots or you're underwriting a thousand lots, a lot of the same legwork has to go into the diligence. Um, yes. And so it's a tough place to, to operate in, but as a result, there's a lot, a lot of opportunity there. If you do have equity, 
um, if you if you can line up equity to to take advantage of those situations. Um, so we, we've been doing. Been, we were just actually at the Build to Rent conference in in Vegas, the IMN Build to Rent. Conference. Yeah, talk about that. And there was uh, it, it was it was this dynamic that I'm talking about. Lots of builders there excited about the projects they can do. Everybody's looking for for money and and the banks and, and the conversation was about, hey, I, I had a bank relationship, but they've backed out. Uh, I've been working with this bank for 20 years. And, you know, my loan officer came to me and said, hey, you know, we just need to play these out or I can't do the incremental projects for you. We need to either keep keep you where you're at or downsize a little bit in terms of our exposure. Uh, and so they're, they're kind of like, you know, slowly sauntering backwards right when the builder really wants them to be more aggressive. Um, and so, um, you know, there's, there's interesting opportunities in that kind of environment um, for both from the lending point so of view as, as well as, as the equity point of view. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So, you know, you, you were there, you're a smart guy. What do you see as the big opportunities for not only, um, you know, break it down from a lender standpoint, you're a lender, and then break it down for the guy on, on Main Street who's actually thinking about doing these projects um, and is in, the, is in a place where he needs equity. Like, what do you see as the opportunity from both angles, Jack? I think that it's like it's a it's a new skill set to learn how to do new construction as an operator. Um, it's not brain surgery, right? But it's but it is very local um, and understanding, and, and it can mm. change county to county. Like the risk profile of a deal can change county to county, uh, and so that becomes kind of table stakes for being for for getting involved in doing new construction. Um, now, once the uh, once the land is is developed and you know utilities are on site and you pour and you 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 dig a hole or you pour a slab, then it's just mm -hmm. flipping a house, right? Then it's just a gut rehab, right? It's a, a framing contractor and um, and uh, framing contractor and uh, your usual mechanical guys that you would use to 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 rough in a full gut rehab. So. That part of it. The only the only difference being is that you should actually understand what your costs are in new construction as opposed to doing a hundred year old house where you open up a wall and find that you've got uh, you know fifty thousand dollars worth of termite damage. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, our experience doing this in Maryland has been that it's been a completely different set of contractors actually, uh, and and oftentimes they end up being cheaper on the whole because you get companies that are. You're dealing with a company that is more of a production mindset um, than mm -hmm. three guys, rather than rather than yeah, chucking a truck yeah, as yeah. we call it. Right? Um, and so it, it can actually be operationally easier um, from that point forward. Uh, but it's building a whole new bench and trying to get you know, and, and if you don't have and trying to like line up uh, capacity with those subcontractors when you don't represent yet. Uh, a lot of volume can be a tricky thing. So that's something to consider, something to manage. But, um, but anyway, if you go through the learning curve, my point is if you go through the learning curve of, of, of being able to do new construction, I think that there's a lot of, in, in markets where you can get a permit in a reasonable time frame. you know, big caveat there. Um, that, but, hmm. uh, you know, that you can find, but you can find infill lot situations and try and do one um, on relatively low stakes. Uh, and, uh, and we, we think that there's interesting, can be interesting margin there. Um, you know, buying lots yeah. doesn't have the emotional aspect to it. Like the seller is not as invested in their lot 
as they are in mom's house, right? When you're, when you're trying to buy, buy that inventory. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and that market is thinner, right? Because of the work, the learning curve that you have to go to, through to, to learn how to do the land portion of, of this. Less competition. Yes, yeah, so there's less competition. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a little bit more business to business, right? Like, hey, I'm buying this lot. They know that you're going to build a lot and, you know, make money on it. There's not the emotional aspect of, of this is mom's house. You know, the lot's worth, lot's worth 20 or 40 or 60 or 100. Like, it is what it is. Um, and uh, there's not builders who are paying like substantially more than somebody else for a particular set of lot, right? Like the unit economics are very similar, um, whatever you're doing. Um, so anyway, I think that if you go through that learning curve and add that tool to your toolbox, um, that being able to supply new inventory to the market, which generally comes with some premium from a pricing point of view, even versus the flip. Um, that's where we're seeing kind of the, the people who are having the most success right now on the, uh, the renovation side are ones who have pivoted slightly, added, added land to their toolbox and, uh, are now looking for, for debt and or equity, uh, on those projects. And we've started doing both. We, we've, we're, we've always done debt for new construction. We're do- I was just about to ask, yeah, we- I was just about to ask that question. You beat me to yeah, it. We, we've always done, we've always done debt for new construction for, for the building side, um, we were doing more acquisition development loans and we've actually been approached by, you know, one of the reasons we were out at this conference is looking for equity opportunities because there is that kind of like vacuum in the market right now. And so being able to provide equity to some of these builders, we think is an interesting, uh, an interesting play right now that has been substantially de-risked um, because of this kind of dynamic in the market. So that's that for, yeah, for me, that's are. like a bright spot, something that we're working on that we think is interesting that's emerged. Um, but yeah, I love that. You know, it requires you know adding some tools to the toolbox, though. Yeah, um, uh, you you you, bro- you stole my thunder in terms of the equity opportunities. But do you see more of that, um, Jack? Because because of this, you know, the massive disparity of e- equity versus debt that that we're now seeing, or that increased amount of money that ha- that has to be brought to the table, there. You're, you believe that there's a real opportunity there for lenders like yourself to jump in where it used to be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the guy who's got a hundred grand, the guy who's got 500 grand, we're not going to cobble together. I'm talking about the smaller guys here. We're going to cobble together the money that we need for equity um, and then go get our debt. What, do you see more lenders like yourself coming online for that type of equity for guys like that? I'm not sure, actually, um, because it's because generally the, 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 the local private lender. Yes, I think absolutely. And I think that that's a really interesting mm. opportunity for local private lenders to do to follow their customers basically into projects that have margin. Now, big caveat on operational ability to execute. Right. So you have to that's yep. that's kind of table stakes. Um, really understand the operator. right? Yeah. But a lot of the, the the a lot of the national lenders and a lot of the banks um, are have I, I don't have their capital structure set up to accommodate new construction lending, uh, and so it's just they just like hey yeah we just don't lend on new construction, and um, it's not because they don't like new construction as a model it's because they told their banks that they weren't going to do that and so they just can't, um, and right. I think that's where the local private lender has an advantage. Um, because they have discretion to do projects that make sense. 
and in changing market conditions, that's what's required to, you know, that, that, that that's, a, that's an important feature to kind of have in your, uh, you know, the discretion to do loans that make sense, not just ones that fit certain guidelines. Yeah. I always like to, uh, when you go to these conferences, um, we should think about doing a podcast from a conference. Oh, that'd be sick. That'd be cool. Like yeah. set up in the conference just and then pull like, people you in. Know, do a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, just like, hey, Logan, come on over. Yeah, we're doing our thing, right? Um, what was the sentiment? Like, so we talked with, uh, so if you have, if, if folks are, who are listening haven't uh, checked in with the last two episodes that we did um, with Dennis Esterna, who's a, um, a really well-established build-to-rent guy, really understands the real estate market very, very well, vast experience. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I really encourage you to do so. Man, I'd love to know what the sentiment was, Jack. What do you, you know, it, do, you, do you see it slowing down? Were they like, hey, we're everybody's pencils down right now until we figure this thing out? Like, talk about like the people who you were meeting and sort of, you know, what their sentiment was. Yeah, I think the um, the sentiment was there's opportunity, um, you know, frankly, it's excitement over opportunity, but frustration over the capital markets situation. Right. Like that, that they, you know, that, that they, if, if, if and that, right. Like that's uh, that's like super, that's what happens. Right. Like when we were buying houses and if we could just finish, if, if we could just figure out this capital shit, we could be, we could be off to the races yeah. is what they're yeah. saying. And in 2011, when we were buying in Atlanta, like, yeah, we were buying in Atlanta because there were great opportunities and there were great opportunities because you couldn't get capital. And, you know, so those goes, <laughs> they just go hand in hand, right. It's never always when yeah. everything's working great together, or, but for, but for a, a moment of months, right. Like everything's humming for a couple months and then the competition comes in and then the margins get, get, you know, get eaten away. So, mm -hmm. um, I think that new construction is probably a place where we're seeing wider margins, uh, earlier, right? Like, um, you know, the, the, the commercial real estate, we were talking about this with Logan on the last episode, the commercial real estate crisis and the opportunities that are going to come out of that environment aren't you know, it's still very, it feels very early innings there. Maybe this started very slow moving train. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and probably the, you know, the best deals have not happened. I'm sure that that's the case. The best deals have not happened yet. Um, and so everyone's just kind of like waiting for those opportunities so that they can take advantage of, you know, the fear and pain that, that, that they think are coming. I think new construction is probably a place where those opportunities have started to emerge because the demand for the product mm -hmm. is absolutely there. The question is, can you get units built and, you know, um, in, in the right markets, can you get the, can you get units built and can you, um, put, put inventory out in the affordable price points, um, and the build to rent, I would say, you know, build to rent as a mo model, um, the equity is frustrated. The build to rent equity, the ones who actually want to own the houses, they're frustrated right now because their debt got expensive. But the builders who are doing those projects, and I think as a result, builders have pivoted to doing those projects for retail sale because affordable homeowner inventory is what is lacking. And, um, and there's still pretty strong absorption for affordable new construction inventory. There's excellent absorption for that. Um, the amount of new inventory that's sitting on the market, this new construction is an incredibly low number. Um, mm. so I think that, that it's, it's that, it's that dynamic of, uh, you know, we've, we're, we're trying to figure out if build to rent is the way to go, or we should, we just go back and sell these, uh, you know, they, they, a build to rent community that is now pivoting to sale to homeowner, um, 
And, uh, but then, you know, but how am I going to fund this thing? They're finding projects, but they're, um, but they're trying to figure out their capital structure to, to get the project actually executed. Interesting. Um, so, uh, we got a few minutes left here. And one of the things that we touched on briefly in the last episode with Logan was, um, sort of the difference between, uh, you know, a financial crisis versus a recession. And um, if we take a look globally at credit right now, um, national debt, you know, declining dollar, things like that, um, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, are we heading towards a financial crisis while at the same time we might be heading towards a recession? They are two sort different things. I, I mentioned in the last episode, 1998 was the financial panic. 1990 was the recession, but no financial panic. 2008 was both. And, and it's nice that it was 2008 because a lot of us can remember exactly what that felt like at the time. And so, Jack, one of the things that I, 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 I can't get away from myself is, yeah, I feel like, you know, the 10 year, the, the yield curve, the inverted yield curve speaks to a, a coming recession. We, we just don't know how deep it will be. But when I look at sort of the uh, global credit, um, you know, where China is right now with their economy, Japan is with their economy, much of the EU is with their economy, and where we are with skyrocketing M2. What do you feel about that, man? Do you feel like we have sort of a convergence of, of two things coming right now? And if so, what's the opportunity in that? Where do you want to be, if not the United States, though, right now? Like, why... Well, yeah. Why the we? I feel like the. I, I think my my sense is that the dollar is strengthening, and but for the concern about war, which is a you know which is a considerable and very concerning concern. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, like where's where where in the world's doing better right now? Like you know what what economy the the the, the American consumer has shown themselves to be remarkably resilient. If there's a technological wave, you know, from if there's going to be productivity gains as a result of technology, they're going to come out of America. Um, I just uh, I'm, I'm struggling with I'm struggling with how America is going to end up in the in the, you know, in, in scrap heap of history. Yeah, re relative because 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 humanity is relative, right? Economies are relative. Like where where would you rather be? And I and I and that, then I'm like ah, no, you know. Not to say we don't have issues, but we've got issues, and and um, and and war is an X factor in this. But um, but I'm just not sure, like where else we'd rather be investing. Where else we'd rather yeah, be investing? You know, I think when you take the long term look, that's absolutely true. It's you know how do you how do you prepare for what may be coming? Do you have less debt on your books? Um, you know, do you do you find better sources, better avenues of credit? better avenues. Is this the time to be really preparing for all of that operationally? Um, if, if you believe some of that, if, if you believe those two factors might be converging. I agree with you. I think it's, you know, I think it's, a, I think it's a very tough short to middle term, like that, that short to middle term horizon. What are the moves as a result of this super? I mean, that's tough. That's a, that, that is the reason I, you know, one of the reasons that I want to do this podcast and like get on here and like get opinions from guys like Logan to talk about exactly, exactly those issues, because I don't think that there's a lot of clarity in the short to medium term as to what the move is as a real estate investor right now. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I agree with Logan that for the long term, you know, there's no place where I think I'd rather own real estate, frankly. But um, it's it's that next 12 to 36 months that I think everybody's trying to get out their best crystal ball on. And that's why I love doing this as well, because we get to hear from so many dis- different sources on sort of where they think it's going as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that are solidifying for me right now, and I would love to hear contrarian views on this, by the way, listeners, if you've, you know, and, or if you've seen other folks who are talking in a different way than this, I don't think, I don't think that mortgage rates, I'm now kind of becoming convinced that I don't think mortgage rates are coming down much soon. Um, and no. I, I, and I think that the recession is going to be a you know if there is one at all a very a little guy um and is not going to be enough of an economic shock for us to get anywhere close to where interest rates were a couple years ago um and i don't think there's going to be any so so i don't think cost of capital is coming down i think the banks are uh you know in a bad spot and they're going to be in a bad spot for two to three years on the low end. Um, so like access to capital, access to more traditional sources of, of capital, I think are, are is not going to resolve itself in the short term. And, um, and, and supply of inventory and, 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 and uh, transaction volumes, I think are going to stay down around where they are right now for, for quite some time, but, you know, for years, um, uh, you know, for two, three plus years. So like in the, in the less than three year period time frame, I feel like this is a new normal of higher cost. Of, yeah. We're living it. Yeah. It's higher cost of cap, high, higher cost of capital, low transaction volumes. And that's a squeeze, man. That's just, that's that slow strangle that like tough spreads. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think there's going to be like a fallout of investors. I feel like it's just going to be like, a you know, everyone's going to slowly, you know, depending on how much air you had in your lungs, you know, you'll die <laughs> at some point along there or figure out how to like, you know, or, or, or pivot, pivot to figure out how to make yourself cash flow positive because I don't think the market. You've been working, you've, you've been working on your financial analogies. I love yeah, it. There you go. Yeah, it's a slow <laughs> strangle. You, you need to put that on a t-shirt. The, uh, I, I, by the way, to that point, I think that like selling, selling rental properties though, is another source of new inventory that hasn't, that, mm. that um, you know, investors have been net buyer, you know, big net buyers of, of housing, of, of affordable housing uh, for the past, you know, whatever, 10 years, particularly the past couple of years because of the low interest rate environment. And I think that, you know, people are going to be forced, investors are going to be forced to tap their equity to pay the bills. And um, so selling rental properties is a way to do that, right? Like on the turnover, you say, you know, so, you know, a year from now, you have a turnover, cash is getting tight. Uh, you've got 80 grand of equity in this property because you bought it back in 2020, 2021, 19, or even earlier. You probably never liked it to begin with. Yeah. And, and, you know? um, and unless you have incredibly cheap long-term debt, which some, many, many do, but, um, you know, but if you have a bank loan, that bank loan's coming up for a five-year reset and your bank wants to reset you to 8%, dude, why am I going to do that? Like, you know, so unless, unless you've got very long-term cheap debt on your balance sheet, I think a lot of real estate investors are going to say, 
hey, at these refi rates, I just can't afford to keep, or it's not worth it for me to afford to, to keep this property. And you know what? I'm gonna mm-hmm. just I'm gonna turn it over as retail and sell it as sell it into the first time home buyer market, and that'll be a, a, a and and you know take that cash off the table and pay the bills. Uh, and I think that there's going to be a lot of like harvesting profits that happens to keep people afloat um, over the next couple of years. And uh, you know it's a good thing that they'll have the op- the ability to do that. But I think that um, I don't think rental portfolios are going to be growing net growing a lot over the next couple of years. I think it could actually go the other direction. And there are fewer investment properties owned by main street real estate investors two years or three years from now than there are today. That's what I, so in just a couple minutes, um, maybe you just speak to that quickly because we know investors who are focused on finding that small mom and pop, who might have five, 10 properties, 15 properties. You, know, you and I have talked about this often. Like you get to a point where it's like the wheels are kind of coming off. I, I'm either going to go to 50 or I'm going to go to 10. I'm either going to go to 100 or I'm going to go back down to 25. And so we know guys um, uh, who are out there focusing on finding those small mom and pop investors who probably have a problem portfolio or it's becoming a problem and saying, hey, we'll buy the whole damn thing from you. Do you see that as opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. And I've talked to a couple of operators who are doing just that, where they, um, they're, they're already doing just that, seeking out, uh, like you just said, um, small portfolios, that um, where there's equity in the portfolio, the cash flow is not great. You know, you can buy it at a great, you know, at a, at a, you can give the seller a great price from their perspective, from a cash on cash return that they're getting. Um, and then mm-hmm. the plan is, to, and the, the play is to just operate it until they turn over, turn them over and sell them retail one at a time over the course of seven years. But this guy is, you know, at the end mm-hmm. of his career and he just doesn't, he, he's like, that's a great idea. Someone should do that. But I'm, I don't want to do that. Like I'm going to go play golf. Um, and like, mm-hmm. I'll take this number now and you can go do that long-term play where you clip a little bit of a coupon and then harvest the equity, harvest the, the you know, the embedded equity there, uh, the implied equity there over the, over the next seven years, 10 years. I think that's definitely a play. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Jack, it's been a great uh, discussion today. I highly encourage everybody to go back and listen to episode 14 with Logan and then uh, check this episode out. Uh, Anything else you want to add? Good conversation. It was great to have Logan on. Looking forward to having other very high quality guests so that we can, uh, you know, get some new ideas, beat up stuff, challenge each other on where things are going. That's the whole point here. So looking forward to doing more of that. Thanks for listening in today. This has been Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fear with Jack Bevere. We'll see you guys next time. See you guys.